for the reading and preaching of God's Word. I'm going to pray for us once again, and then we will open up to Isaiah chapter 5 and Mark chapter 11. So let's pray. Uh, Father, we come in the name of Christ with the help of the Holy Spirit to pray now for illumination. Lord, teach us your ways, and we shall observe them to the end. Give us understanding of the gospel so that we may observe your law and keep it wholeheartedly. Make us walk in the path of your commandments, for we delight in it. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to evil. Use the preaching of the gospel of Mark this morning to turn our eyes away from the fleeting things of this world. Use your word to revive us in your ways. Establish your word to your servants because it produces reverence for you in our hearts. Father, the reading and preaching of your scriptures, it's, it's an ordinance, and your ordinances are good. And you use your ordinances to turn away the reproach which we dread. Father, we, we come this morning longing for your precepts, so revive us through your righteous word. Amen. If you would stand with me now for the reading of God's holy and errant and life-giving word, starting in Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Let me sing now for my well-beloved, a song for my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. And planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it and also hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall, and it will become trampled ground." I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clowns to rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah, his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed for righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. This is the word of the Lord. Now we turn over to the gospel of Mark chapter 11. We're going to start in verse 27 and go through Mark chapter 12, verse 12. They came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him and began saying to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do these things? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, and you answer me, and then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. They began reasoning among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Then why did you not believe him? But shall we say from men? They were afraid of the people, for everyone considered John to have been a real prophet. Answering Jesus, they said, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, nor will I tell you by what authority 
I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a vat under the wine press and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. They took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them another slave, and they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and that one they killed. And so, with many others, beating some and killing others. He had one more to send, a beloved son. He sent him last of all to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those vine growers said to one another, This is the heir, come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. They took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read the scripture, the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is, a mar- and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to seize him, and yet they feared the people. For they understood that he spoke the parable against them. And so they left him and went away. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Here at Christ the King Church, we're building up God's people by the ordinary means of grace. We're rooting our Christian practices in the historic Reformed faith, and we're preparing our covenant children in the Lord to be the continuing church. We began our sermon series on the book of Mark uh, quite a while ago. It was over a a year ago, I believe. And we've entered today in a section of Mark's gospel in which Jesus faces five controversies. Uh, Earlier in this series on Mark, we observed a section in which he stepped into five conflicts, uh, five Uh, uh, controversies in Galilee, and I told you at that time, I I doubt many of you can remember it, I forgot it until I read it in my notes, I told you that later those five conflicts in Galilee would be paralleled or mirrored by five uh, confrontations that he would have in Jerusalem the week of his death. And here we are. It's been a long time since we were in Mark chapter 2 verses 1 through chapter 3 verse 6, but here we are. We've made it to the second set of five conflicts that Jesus has. Now, we've already covered one of these five. We covered it on Easter Sunday. It's the very middle one, the third of the five, where Jesus has uh, a confrontation with the Sadducees, and they ask him a question about the resurrection. So I'm not going to cover that one again in two two weeks, but I just want to alert you to uh, the fact that uh, Scripture kind of does this sometimes. There's, There's kind of literary Uh, mirroring from one part of the book to another. These five conflicts are kind of bookends, if you will, in the book of Mark. Now, who does he have conflict with in this particular episode? Well, uh, verse 27 of chapter 11 tells us that Jesus and the disciples walk into the temple for the third day in a row. It's now a Tuesday, right? This is after Palm Sunday. He's flipped over the tables on a Monday. He's returning on a Tuesday. He's just had the conversation with uh, with the disciples on the road in about the withered uh, fig tree that he cursed the day before. And now on a Tuesday, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders come to confront him. They are not happy about what he's been doing and teaching for a long time, 
but flipping over tables in their temple and teaching people kind of contrary to their will is just something they can't handle. Essentially what's happening here is the heads of the various denominations, the doctors of the church, right, the professors, right, and the local church sessions have come to Jesus to ask him a question, which is really more of an accusation. And the accusation in verse 28 sounds like a compound question. What authority do you have to do these things? And who gave that authority to you? Essentially, show us your ID badge. Like, who, who gave you the credentials to do this stuff? And there's two ways that he could have answered. He could have said, well, boys, I'm God, right? So, uh, there, you know, no authority comes from me. Like, it's all mine. So here, I, I, just, I just have it. The second way he could have answered is he could have said, well, I'm the son of God. I'm the Christ. The Father has given me authority on the earth to do these things. I'm the prophet, priest, and king. So I have authority as a part of those messianic roles. He didn't do that either. In part, I think, because uh, when people don't really care about what your answer is, when people are asking you for your license and registration or your ID badge, and you're, you've already kind of shown it to them, uh, and they don't really care, they kind of look past you and pretend like you don't have them, why, why get the paperwork out anyway? It's kind of a waste of time. In verse 29, what he does, instead of giving them the, look, I'm God in the flesh answer, or I'm the son of God, the, the Christ you've been waiting for answer, he does what many rabbis would do. This is part of kind of the, the rabbinical uh, debate uh, uh, kind of rhetoric. You answer a question with a question. Right? In our modern Western society, when a politician or someone important is asked a straightforward question, uh, and they turn around and ask a question of their own, oftentimes it's obnoxious, right, because it's a dodge. They're being evasive. They're not being straightforward. That's not what's happening here. This is just how you dialogue one rabbi to another. And he basically says, look, you answer me, and I'll answer you. And it seems like what he's doing in verse 29 and 30 is he's basically saying, uh, if you answer my question, you'll answer your own question. He seems to be tying the source of his authority to the source of John's authority, right? Because if you answer John's question correctly, you'll also answer their question to Jesus correctly. And Jesus puts them in a, di in a dilemma with this question. A dilemma is a situation in which a difficult choice has to be made between two or more alternatives, especially equally undesirable ones. They're between a rock, a hard place, and a buzzsaw here. That's their situation after Jesus gives them the question. And verses 31 through 32 says they began reasoning amongst themselves. If this is out in public. It's out there in the, in the temple, right? And they began reasoning amongst themselves, meaning uh, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders are asking Jesus and the disciples this question kind of out in the open. And then I, I, I honestly don't know how this worked. Did they like turn around like, okay, huddle up, right? And they got to, we don't know how this worked. It just says they began reasoning amongst themselves, right? So they did their kind of holy or unholy huddle thing here. And they kind of had a conversation like, look, if we answer this way, if we say uh, that it's from heaven, uh, we open ourselves up to the charge of being unbelieving fools, because we don't, we don't believe in John the Baptist. We don't believe what he said. We rejected him, right? So we can't say from heaven because we don't really believe it. And if we say that, he's going to say, why didn't you believe him? Or we're going to look really foolish. If we say what we really think, which is it's from man, meaning it's just a man-made authority that John the Baptist had, everyone here is going to be mad at us because all the people, right, the flock of Israel believed that John the Baptist was a legitimate prophet. It's the under-shepherds that rejected him. 
And that's who these men are. These are the under-shepherds of Israel. The under-shepherds are having a debate here with the true shepherd, and they have no idea who he really is. And they won't give him the answer that's really in their hearts because they're afraid of the flock. When the under-shepherds become afraid of the flock, uh, the covenant people are in danger. And when the, when the under-shepherds don't really know who the true good shepherd is, even when he's standing right in front of their faces, the covenant people are not in a good spot. So they, can't, they won't give him that answer. They won't give him the true answer. They can either look stupid or be in trouble with the people. Neither one of those are acceptable answers. So they're like, we choose door number three. We're going to say we don't know, right? right? If you're a parent, you've heard this answer, right? What are, you, what are you doing? I don't know. <laughs> Why'd you do that? I, I don't know. Right? They decide that looking ignorant is better than having people be mad at them or to just be plain foolish. It's an acceptable form of stupidity in their, in their view. But the problem with saying we don't know is that they're not going to get an answer from Jesus. And they don't, frankly, they don't deserve one. They're not there having a, a sincere conversation in good faith. Right? They don't deserve an answer. Now, here's a spiritual principle I want to draw out of this little exchange. People in the world today, including us, including Christians in the church, we have all kinds of questions for God, all kinds of demands and stipulations, but it needs to dawn upon us, it needs to dawn upon humanity that we owe the Lord some answers, right? They come questioning Jesus and it doesn't seem to dawn upon them that they should offer an explanation to the shepherd about how they've been governing Israel. We should be personally alert of this attitude within ourselves. And also evangelistically, as we're engaging people in our lives that may not be Christians, we need to be aware of this attitude and posture in others. Right? The, the potter does not owe the clay explanations. It's the other way around. That's kind of what you saw, I think, a little bit in Isaiah chapter 5. Uh, uh, Isaiah sings this lament for, for God, for all of God's work in this vineyard and how the vineyard produced sour grapes is how uh, uh, some, it says worthless in, in some translations, but sour grapes is literally how you could translate that. Right? He wanted sweet, wonderful, a nice vintage for wine, and he got sour grapes instead. So the vineyard owes him some answers. Now, after refusing to answer their question, Jesus began a parable which, as you remember, is a dark saying. It's a dark saying used to conceal the truth from one group of people and to reveal the truth to another, right? And usually the in crowd, the people who get the parable, those are people of faith, right? And the lack of understanding from other cov covenant people that are receiving the parable, that's God's judgment upon them. Right? His parable here illustrates what is currently happening in Israel and what has been happening in Israel for a long time. I'm going to give you five notes of interest about this parable. The first note is this. As, as uh, the author Mark Horn wrote, this is the inverted parable. Because usually, as I just stated, the people who get the parable are what? They're people of faith. And the people who don't get it, they don't get it because God is judging them. This one's inverted. Because verse 12 of chapter 12 says what about these men? They understood. They perceived They perceived that this parable was against them. It dawns upon them, oh, this parable is about us. That's inverted from the way that it usually goes. Now, but remember what I said many, 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 many months ago about parables. Parables aren't just these allegories or stories that we go, huh, that's a thinker. 
What's for dinner? No, it's meant to make us do something. So God's judgment upon these men is that they understand that the parable is about them. They get it, but they do nothing with it. So they don't really get it, do they? That's the, that's the judgment being leveled against them. The second note that I want you to understand about this parable is, well, Mark just rarely includes Jesus' parables. You see parable after parable after parable in Matthew and in Luke. But you don't see very many in Mark. Can you remember the last time that Michael or I or someone else covered a parable from the book of Mark? It was chapter 4. There's literally babies drooling and cooing in this room right now that weren't even born. Literally, they weren't born yet. The last time that we saw a parable from the Gospel of Mark. Why is that? Well, remember Mark's style. He's just about that action. He just wants a bit. He just, he's just immediately, immediately, immediately. That's the common word 41 times in the book, right? He doesn't have time for parables. He's about action. So when Mark includes a parable, it's a really, really big deal. This parable is essential on the week of Jesus' death. It's essential to help uh, to help the, the people there in Rome that are receiving this gospel account from Mark. It's essential to helping them understand the story, right? Because remember, the church at Rome is made up of, of Jew and Gentile alike, and, and their elders in the local church there would have been both Jewish and Gentile, and none of them would have been these particular men. They would not have been these scribes, these types of elders, uh, these chief priests, more on that in a minute. Here's the third note I want you to understand uh, about this parable. Jesus clearly cites, he directly quotes, if you have a New American Standard, uh, what the New American Standard will do when Jesus is quoting scripture is it'll give you the Old Testament in all caps. So you probably noticed that uh, if you've got a red letter Bible in, in chapter 12, verse 1, that, that it says a man planted and then all of a sudden a vineyard and put a wall around it is in all caps. He's directly quoting Isaiah chapter 5, in which God is mad at the vineyard itself, and the vineyard in that passage, I mean, Isaiah clearly spells it out, uh, that the vineyard is uh, the the people of Israel, the men of of Judah in particular. The prophet sings a lamenting parable about his beloved, which is the Lord, shows all of God's hard work, and shows the failure of his people to respond. But in Mark 12, this is the fourth note about this parable, the tenants, it's sometimes, sometimes some translations will say tenant farmers. The ESV says tenants. The, the New American Standard says vine growers. Right? They're the target of the parable. God isn't bringing judgment against uh, the vines and the sour grapes themselves, but rather those who are in charge of keeping the vineyard. And the tenant farmers, the vine growers, are the leadership of Israel. It's the men that he was just talking to. That's why they perceive that he's talking against them. They knew who they were, right? They're they're these tenant farmers. They're the vine growers, right? The slaves that are sent to talk to them throughout the parable of chapter 12, that would be the prophets, right? From Samuel all the way up to John the Baptist, right? The, The son in this, like the son of the vineyard owner, that's, of course, the son of God, Jesus. The vineyard here is Israel. The vineyard owner is God. And you see the character of God being revealed by the Son in this parable. You can see how he's made a great investment in the vineyard. He's shown great care. He's he's, uh, spared nothing in order to give this vineyard the best chance of producing good fruit. We see that both in this parable and in the parable in Isaiah chapter 5. 
So God has shown great care for his covenant people. He's also generous and long-suffering. That's what you see in this parable. He's more than reasonable, but he's also not to be trifled with. Because in the end, after they kill the son and cast him out of the vineyard, the father comes in judgment to destroy the wicked tenants, the wicked vine growers. Here's the fifth note I want to give you about this parable, just background material. I want you to understand the economic arrangement uh, described here. Uh, There's documents that that have been studied recently that have shown that this was, Jesus isn't just making this up. This is a real economic arrangement that had been practiced at least 280 years before Jesus is giving the parable. And then it continued on as a practice economically for some time afterwards. Basically what happened is wealthy men would own a vineyard, but they weren't going to, they couldn't stick around. They can't just let this vineyard kind of go to waste. And so they'd make an arrangement. They'd say to these, these tenant farmers, these uh, vine growers, look, you, uh, you get to farm this land. And part of our contract is that I get part of the produce. I've set up all of the infrastructure. That's what you see in this parable. I've dug the vat around the wine press. I've built a tower and now I'm renting it out to you. And and when harvest season comes, I will send someone to bring some of the produce to me. I want to make sure that our investment in this vineyard that will eventually lead to wine, I want to make sure that it's going well. We're going to share the profits together, right? So this this is a normal economic arrangement. Remember, Jesus, when he tells parables, he doesn't make up stories that aren't real. He doesn't use elements that would be far-fetched or unfathomable to his audience. He always uses real-life scenarios. So that's the economic arrangement that's the background to this parable. But what is Jesus saying about the leaders of Israel? Like, what's the whole point of the parable? Why are these men that he's in this debate with, why are they being judged? Well, the leaders of Israel, not just the ones that Jesus is talking to, but for a long time, their, their predecessors had rejected God's messengers, right? The slaves that are coming to the tenant farmers in this parable, those are the prophets of Israel. The vine growers not only failed to pay rent, but they abused or killed the collectors as they would come. And that's what you see in the prophets. That's just not a kind of a made-up part of the parable. That's actually what happened to the prophets in Israel. Except for Jonah, most of the prophets uh, were, were beat up or, or ignored or even killed by the people they came and, and spoke to. Right? The irony of, of the prophet, a prophet's ministry is that Jonah is super reluctant to do his job, and the people actually listen to him, and the entire society uh, repents. Right? But you know that I love using the case of Isaiah. Right? He's told, look, 90% of the people are going to reject you. Many of the prophets were beaten up. They were martyred, even. So that's who Jesus is talking about. And and John the Baptist was the latest one. He was the latest messenger to come to Israel, right? And and many people in the flock of Israel listened to him and believed him, but the leaders rejected him. And they didn't raise a finger to stop Herod from killing him. I can't help, as I read this passage, of thinking of modern applications like Uh, The PCUSA kicking out J. Gresham Machen or J.I. Packer, who is no no longer uh, with us. Uh, But he was uh, basically defrocked and kicked out of his Anglican denomination towards uh, towards the end of his life. And as one Reformed preacher said when that happened, if you kick J.I. Packer out of your denomination, you get a front row seat on the train to hell. 
So they rejected, these people rejected God's messengers. And do you remember what I said about the, the vineyard owner, about his character? He's long-suffering. He sends slave after slave, messenger after messenger. So often people will read one passage in the Old Testament and go, wow, God just seems to be a hothead. He just seems to, to not have much patience. Well, you can only come to that conclusion if you don't understand the long periods of time that God suffers with his people. Right? If you read the whole story, you can see how long God suffers with us, how patient he is over and over and over again before he brings judgment. So they rejected God's messenger, but they also rejected God's Messiah, his own son. You know, finally, the, the, the parable says, that, you know, finally the father's like, I'm going to send my son. Surely they'll listen to him. Now, remember, parables are not allegories. The father did not send the son to earth thinking that we would actually all listen to him right away. He didn't send the son naively thinking that the scribes and the chief priests, the Sanhedrin, right, the elders of Israel would actually believe what the son was saying and doing, right? But what's happening in this parable is we're being shown how reasonable God the father is to send his son and then hold people to account when they reject him. It's reasonable. Now, Here's what you need to understand, uh, the, the logic of the people who rejected the son in this parable. If the son is showing up, their logic would have been, oh, the father's dead. The father's dead. This is the heir. So if we kill him, this vineyard that we're working kind of goes into ancient Near Eastern probate, and we have a chance to take possession of it. So if we kill him, we get the whole vineyard to ourselves. And remember, they're wicked. They're wicked. So they, they kill him and throw his body outside of the vineyard like it's nothing, like it's just this withered branch from, from, from the vines that's trash, and they think it's all ours now. This reminds me of denominations in the last 100, 150 years in the United States and in other parts of the Western world that have rejected the deity of Christ and the authority of his word. Same, same. It's basically the same thing. We're rejecting the Messiah. We're rejecting the anointed one, the Christ. We're saying we don't really want him as our God. We don't really want his authority over our lives. If we just get rid of him, then we can save the church from, from uh, being irrelevant. That was the logic of the, of the liberal theologians of the 20th century, starting in like 1905. The church is becoming irrelevant in America. We've got to save the church from being irrelevant. So we have to get rid of all these doctrines that make it too hard for people to believe, like the deity of Christ and the infallibility, inerrancy, and authority of God's word. Essentially what you're doing when you reject those things is you're rejecting God's Messiah. You're, you're rejecting the anointed one. The third thing that these leaders of Israel did, not just in the generation of Jesus, but for many generations before, is they rejected God's mission. Jesus, after finishing the parable, says, Have you not even read the scripture? And he's referring to Psalm 118. The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. God is up to something, and you've rejected what he's doing. They've rejected what God is building in Christ. Today, churches, led by their, their elders, adopt their own missions altogether. They, they think the true mission of the church is old and outdated. It won't work, they think. 
They neglect the right preaching of the word, the pure administration of the sacraments, and proper church discipline. They take on a new mission in the social gospel or in the adoption of a conservative view of power religion or the bully pulpit. They absorb some sort of theocratic vision in which they believe that if we just pass the right laws, if we just take control of the government and pass the right laws, that will convert people to Jesus Christ. The laws of man will convert the hearts of man. That's how people reject God's mission today. People who lean uh, socially, politically left and, and, and right both can make similar mistakes. Let me give you a, a quick apologetic point. You've heard me say this before. On more than one occasion, when dialoguing with a non-Christian, they've said something to the effect of this. Why can't God just come and talk with us? Why can't God just sit down with us and we can hash this out. Why can't we talk and reason together and come to some sort of agreement about his expectations of us and what we think is reasonable to do for him? There's different styles of answering that kind of question. One is what I call the Vody Bauckham style answer, which is to say, uh, that's the wrong question, right? Why should a God, why should a creator pull up a chair with a creature and ask for the creature's opinion about how to run a universe. Folks, I can't even get our church printer to run properly. You think I can consult God on how to run the cosmos? No. The average person can't get their car and their smartphone to run at optimal levels. But yeah, they're going to sit down with God and consult him on how things should run around here. That makes no sense. And there's the R.C. Sproul style of answering that question. What's wrong with you people? Right? He actually said that once. It's really great. And he went on to say in that same answer, we don't know who God is. When you think that the creator owes the creature an opportunity to dialogue about their relationship, you don't know what a God is. You don't understand the word. And if you don't understand what the word God is, how are you going to tell God how to be God? Right? And then there's kind of a style that I've kind of adopted, which is let me accept your premise. Let me take your presupposition I don't, I reject it, but let's just, as an experiment, for two minutes, consider what you're recommending. God did keep sending people to have a conversation. God did keep sending people, prophets, his mouthpiece, his official representatives, to tell his covenant people what he expected of them. How did it go for those messengers? They kept getting killed. And then God showed up himself in the flesh, right? These men that he's talking to in the special, they don't want to negotiate. They're just like the wicked tenant farmers. They're like the vine growers. They don't want to build his kingdom. They're rejecting what God is doing. They're rejecting God's Messiah. They're rejecting God, God's authority. They want their own kingdom. Jesus is a threat to the civil kingdom of his age and to the ecclesial kingdom that these men have their fists so tightly wrapped around. They rejected the redemption that God offered. I mean, their, their God is in the flesh, dialoguing with them, doing what these people have said would be reasonable for God to do. How did it work for Jesus? They killed him for it. And we would be arrogant to think that we would do any different if we were in their seat. Here he is, redemptive history's focal point. He was foretold of and foreshadowed in the Old Testament scriptures. He's standing in front of them, and they rejected him. Later that week, they would kill the son of the vineyard owner, and his dead body would be outside the city walls. That's, that's a difference between real life and the parable. 
in the parable, they kill him, and then they throw him out of the vineyard. In real life, they took him out of the city first and then killed him. Right? Not sure it makes a, a, a bit of difference uh, which, which order it went in. The point is they killed the Son of God. They rejected the Messiah. They rejected the mission. The, the tenant farmers aren't any better for killing him in the vineyard first and then disposing of his body outside the city gates. Here's a summary of this parable. The leaders of Israel rejected God's revealed will. That is, they rejected God's authority. Right? This whole series of conflicts that Jesus has begun to engage in deals with authority in some way. And here, the leaders of Israel have rejected the authority of the Son and the other messengers of God. So what does God do? What does God do when the ecclesial leaders of the day reject his authority and reject the authority of his messengers and of the Messiah himself? Well, he takes authority away from them. This is a big idea, this, this passage. Ecclesial authority ultimately belongs to God. It's God's to give and it's God's to take away. He took it away for these men and he gave it to the elders and the deacons of the new covenant church. God took the role of leadership in the covenant community away from these men and gave it to others. Jesus caps off this parable by quoting Psalm 118, a messianic psalm in which he describes this thing that God is doing as marvelous. Isn't it kind of interesting that God would refer to an act of judgment as marvelous? That is, that's not the first word that pops into our mind when we think of judgment. Like the story of Noah's Ark. That's marvelous. Like that's not usually the word that comes to mind. But what's marvelous about God's judgment is that God's judgment never ends the story. It keeps the story going. And the story is always getting better. I was reminded yesterday as I was reading Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 7, that the promise of God is that when the, when the Christ comes, when the king comes, there will be an increase of his gov government, a perpetual increase of peace that comes from it. The story, despite periods of time, eras of judgment, the story is getting better. It's a marvelous thing. Because of the sinfulness of mankind, there can be long season Long seasons in which ecclesial leaders reject the very word of God. In doing so, they reject the revealed will of God and his authority. But church, God is unstoppable. Widespread, wholesale, long-term failed human leadership cannot thwart our God. Even when the leadership of the covenant people fails miserably, God is doing something marvelous because ecclesial authority ultimately belongs to him. When ecclesial authority fails, God takes that authority away and gives it to someone else. This passage is most clearly a warning to those who lead in the church of Jesus Christ. It's a warning to elders in local churches, presbyteries, denominations, and interchurch councils like NAPARC and, and the IRC. Right? As, we, as we come up to seasons of general assemblies and general synods and presbyteries in which we vote on matters of peace and purity of the church... This is a warning for us to not reject the authoritative word of God. This is a warning for elders who are building their own kingdoms instead of the kingdom of God. It's a warning for elders who have forgotten that the vineyard does not belong to us. We're merely tenants, servants tending to God's vineyard. For elders who have gotten a little too clever and cozy with the fallen world, this passage, this parable is a warning 
We must not reject the law of God or hesitate to insist that the Lord has authority over all mankind. This parable is a warning for, uh, for elders in our day-to-day actions on behalf of the local church for the sake and the pe- of the peace and purity of the bride that Christ died for. If we fail to be faithful, the owner will take the vineyard from us and he'll give it to someone else. He's done it time and time again throughout history. Even in our own nation in the last 150 years, many of the mainline denominations that were unfaithful 120 years ago, they are slowly, quite literally, dying. They have enough money to be endowed uh, in perpetuity, it seems. But when there's no one left in the building, all of those beautiful stone Presbyterian, bu- Presbyterian buildings are just whitewashed tombs that will stand if they continue to stand, uh, many of them will probably be bought and then uh, renovated into something else. But many of those buildings will stand as symbols, as signposts of God's judgment over tenant farmers who reject his authority. But how does this passage apply to all of us? How does it apply to the average person sitting in the pew? Well, we've all been a little bit like the wicked tenants, haven't we? We've all sinned against the Father and against the Son. We all have these areas of our lives in which we go... I want to do my own thing. I want, to, I want to reject the authority that you have over that area of my life. I want to hold on to that part of the vineyard. I want to withhold the fruit of the vine. I don't want to give it over to God. We've all attempted to take a vineyard of sorts for ourselves. But the good news is that the son came to die for wicked people, for people who reject the authority of God. The gospel offers us the beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and by faith we receive him and rest in him alone for salvation. He calls us to repent of our sins and to submit to his kingship. The beauty of the son is that in him we receive the inheritance of sonship from the father. What we deserve is death and judgment, but by grace what we get is God himself as a father, and we get the blessings of redemption that flow to to us when we live by faith in the Son of God alone. Let the hearer understand. Let's pray.